Donald Trump will turn himself into authorities in Atlanta late today, charged with racketeering and conspiracy in connection with attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The former president will be arrested and photographed at the county jail. NPR is following developments. It's Thursday, August 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Scientists are worried about long-term environmental consequences as Japan releases treated radioactive water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Plus, researchers say the disappearance of large mammals in North America 13,000 years ago happened all at once. It was like a line in the sand. I thought we would see like a slow decline going down because people are getting more common, but that's not what happened. And a new study finds human-caused wildfires caused the mass extinction. Also ahead, a reporter logs her use of plastics for a week. We'll find out what she learned. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former President Donald Trump is expected to turn himself into authorities in Georgia tonight. Raul Bally with member station WABE reports Trump will be booked on 13 felony charges in connection with his alleged efforts to overturn the state's 2020 election results. The former president is expected to go through the standard arrest procedure, including being fingerprinted and photographed. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office has been regularly releasing booking photos of some of the other defendants that have already turned themselves in, including attorneys Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman. Trump also has to post a $200,000 bond, which requires him to not intimidate other defendants or witnesses, including on social media. All defendants have until noon Friday to turn themselves in. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. Trump's expected surrender comes a day after Republican presidential contenders held the first debate of the 2024 campaign. NPR's Domenico Montanaro says last night's debate in Milwaukee offered a snapshot of what the field could look like without Trump, who's leading most polls by double digits. Trump didn't show up to the debate, and that meant he wasn't there to defend himself from the inevitable attacks. But for most of the first hour, Trump wasn't even mentioned. The candidates instead debated the economy, crime, abortion, and climate change. Former tech CEO Vivek Ramaswamy became the unexpected focus. He exuded confidence but seemed to irritate the other candidates, including former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. She had a strong debate performance, but the candidate polling second, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, seemed to fade into the background. That could create an opening in the anyone other than Trump lane in the primary. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. Russian President Vladimir Putin is expressing his condolences for the families of the victims killed in a plane crash near Moscow yesterday. But NPR's Charles Maines reports Putin stopped short of confirming that Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was killed in the crash. Looking somber as he delivered televised remarks, President Putin said initial reports suggested members of the Wagner mercenary group were aboard the plane when it crashed. The Kremlin leader then praised Wagner's contributions to the war effort in Ukraine, saying they wouldn't be forgotten. Putin also spoke about his decades-long relationship with Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, referring to him in the past tense and calling him a talented person who'd made serious mistakes, an apparent reference to a rebellion launched by Prigozhin against the Russian military earlier this summer. Putin did not expressly confirm Prigozhin's death, but vowed an investigation into the crash would be carried out in full. Charles Baines, NPR News, Moscow. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 373 points. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Community college is now free in Massachusetts under some conditions. The Mass Reconnect program allows adults over 25 without a prior degree to pursue an associate's degree or certificate at one of the state's 15 community colleges. WBUR's Max Larkin reports the governor was out today promoting the initiative. Governor Maura Healey called the program a long-term investment in access to higher education and the state economy during an event at Mass Bay Community College. It's also an investment in students like Danita Menz. Menz put off a certification in interior design at Mass Bay due to the cost of tuition and her new obligations as a parent. I had to take a break because of my child, and if I didn't, I wouldn't have gotten this opportunity. To have this financial burden lifted is going to be life-changing for me. Healy said she expects the program to serve 8,000 students in its first year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. More than 120,000 people have lost their mass health insurance since the state began reviewing every member's eligibility this past spring. Mass health members have to renew their coverage because a federal pandemic policy that loosened criteria to qualify for Medicaid has ended. Those who lose mass health may qualify for subsidies and can enroll in private health plans. The MBTA says part of the red line will be shut down for two weeks in October so workers can replace some of the oldest track in the system. T General Manager Phil Eng said today shuttle buses will replace train service on the Ashmont branch between the JFKU Mass and Ashmont stations and on the Mattapan line. This diversion will allow the crews to replace the rail ties ballast between JFKU, Mass, and Ashmont, and between Ashmont and Mattapan to improve reliability and reduce maintenance needs. Eng says the repair work will allow the T to lift 28 speed restrictions along that portion of the line. Well, in sports, the Red Sox are topping the Houston Astros 11-0 in the bottom of the fifth inning at Fenway right now. The Astros lead the series two games to one. We'll have a chance of showers tonight, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, showers, maybe some thunderstorms. The high will only get to about 71 degrees. Then a chance of showers on Saturday, otherwise partly sunny with temps around 80. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. 350 million gallons. That's how much radioactive wastewater Japan has stored at the now-defunct Fukushima nuclear power plant, which melted down after a massive earthquake and tsunami in 2011. The government began releasing some of that water into the Pacific Ocean today. International inspectors have approved the plan to release the water slowly over decades. Still, many people are concerned. NPR's Jeff Brumfield and Kat Lonsdorf are here to talk us through the science behind the decision. Good to have you both in the studio. Hey, Ari. Hello. Kat, you made a reporting trip to Fukushima in 2020. You went to the Daiichi nuclear power plant. Why is there so much radioactive water there? 
So the water comes from a couple of sources. First, it's water that was used to cool the reactors when they melted down in 2011. But then they've also had to continue pumping water in to cool those same reactors. Even though they're offline and being decommissioned, you can't just turn a nuclear reactor off. And then there's also groundwater that's filtered into the site over the years. So this water keeps building up. It's being stored in these giant tanks right now. There are about a 1,000 on the site. I went to see them when I was there, and they just stretch on for as far as the eye can see. And that was three years ago, so they're really running out of room now. Managing and storing that water safely has been a huge problem, which is why the government has been treating it to release it. And Jeff, what does that actually mean to treat these 350 million gallons of water? It all comes down to one word, Ari, which is filtration. The Japanese government's basically built the world's largest Brita filter. Um, (laughs) And what they're trying to do is basically remove as many of the radioactive elements as they can. So these are things like strontium and cesium, which are dangerous for humans and animals. And they can get those down below government safety limits. But there is a radioactive isotope they can't get rid of, and that's called tritium. Tritium is an isotope of hydrogen, and hydrogen is you know part of H2O. It's part of the water itself. So they can't filter it, and that's something that's made this plan controversial. Now, I should say that tritium isn't the most dangerous radioactive element out there. It doesn't build up inside plants and animals, and it has a half-life of just 12 years as opposed to something like uranium-235, which sticks around for 700 million years. So it could be worse. And Ari, I think some helpful context here is that, for better or worse, functioning nuclear power plants around the world release tritium regularly for the reasons Jeff just explained. We haven't figured out a way to filter it out of water. So not to pile on, but this is happening all over the place. There are standards that have been set for it. And in some places, it's happening at levels much higher than what we're seeing in this release. And yet there is still local and regional objections, which we'll talk about in a moment. First, tell us how Japan is actually putting this water into the ocean. There are a couple steps. First, they're going to dilute the radioactive water so that there's a lot less tritium in every drop. The government says that they will bring tritium levels to well below all safety limits. Then they're going to take that diluted water and pass it through a super long tunnel under the seafloor to a point off the coast of Fukushima and the Pacific Ocean, and that will dilute it further. And like you said, Ari, they're not just dumping it all in. They're going to do this slowly. It's going to take decades to empty out those tanks. You've both been talking with a lot of scientists about this plan. What are they telling you? So generally, most scientists seem to agree that this will have a negligible impact on the environment if it's done to plan. I talked to Jim Smith. He's a professor of environmental science at Portsmouth University in the UK. He's been studying radioactivity and waterways impacted by nuclear waste for decades. The risk is really, really, really low. And I would call it not a risk at all. We've got to you know, put radiation in perspective. And, and the, the planned release, if it's done properly, then the doses that people get and the doses that the ecosystem get just won't be significant, in my opinion. But even if that's true, not all scientists think this is a good idea. I spoke to Ken Bissler at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. He worries about the precedent Japan sets by doing this, even though he agrees the ocean will dilute the radioactivity. It's a big place. We're not going to suffer directly from the doses from this But it's one of the many things we're adding to our ocean that if you have an alternative, we certainly should consider more fully. Uh, And I don't think that's been done 
in the past couple of years. And Bissler's also worried that even small quantities of contaminants missed by that filtration system I mentioned could slowly accumulate in the sediments around the plant. That could cause problems for local fisheries down the road. Our colleague Anthony Kuhn was reporting from Fukushima yesterday where people are worried. There have been protests in South Korea. China has banned seafood from the area. Are people overreacting? No, I don't think people in Fukushima are overreacting at all. I mean, during and immediately after the disaster, the government and TEPCO, that's the company that runs the nuclear power plant, were both pretty deceitful with data and information. They've since apologized and are trying to be more transparent, but there's this deep distrust that's still there. And, you know, Fukushima is a big fishing area. So even if scientists say that the fish from there is fine, if people around the world don't trust that and won't buy it, that's not good. You know, there's a geopolitical side to this as well. You know, there's a history of radioactive contamination in the Pacific. It was the site of nuclear testing during the Cold War, and many Pacific Island nations suffered the consequences. Ken Bissler is working with some of them, and, you know, he told me the trauma runs deep. Some of these islands are still off limits. So the idea of a developed country using the Pacific to unload its radioactive wastewater just upsets quite a few people on principle. NPR's Jeff Brumfield and Kat Lonsdorf, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Former President Trump is expected to turn himself in at a jail in Georgia later today. He faces 13 felony charges from failed efforts to overturn the state's 2020 presidential election. Trump has called these charges political persecution. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler is outside the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta. Hi, Stephen. Hey there. So set the scene for us where you are. What are you looking at? So I am currently looking at one of the two entrances to the Fulton County Jail. I'm surrounded by a row of media. I drove in past protesters, both supporting and opposing former President Trump, parking next to a couple Trump flags, for example. And there's a lot of police present. Uh, the already traffic-clogged roads of Atlanta are only going to get worse because several of them are already blocked off ahead of the motorcade. You know, it's not every day a former president gets booked into a county jail. No, it is not every day that a former president gets booked at a county jail. But on that front, Will he be treated any differently from other criminal defendants who routinely get processed at that jail? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt has said Trump will be treated the same, which means we should expect to see the first booking photo out of the four different indictments that he's done in the last four months. Mm -hmm. But he won't be led away in handcuffs or stay there any longer than necessary. It could take about 30 minutes. That's definitely faster than most people who enter this jail. And like many, his lawyers have negotiated a bond agreement beforehand with the DA's office, $200,000. It also includes heightened restrictions on witness intimidation. It's still an unprecedented event to have a former American president booked into a local jail, even with this streamlined processing. Unprecedented indeed. Okay, let's just remind listeners why Trump is there in the first place. He already faces charges for trying to overturn the 2020 election, but at the federal level, these are of course local charges. Just walk us through this case real quick. Well, Elsa, long story short, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis alleges that Trump was the center of a, quote, criminal enterprise, this conspiracy to illegally overturn the 2020 election loss in Georgia. 
Unlike the federal charges last month, the state-level charges won uh, under an expansive racketeering law that's got 18 other co-defendants. Mm -hmm. Two, it zeroes in on efforts to get state-level officials to illegally overturn the election results. And three, he can't be pardoned by himself or anyone else other than a state-appointed pardons and parole board, but only after the end of any sentence. Right, because these are state charges. Okay, all 19 defendants in this case are supposed to turn themselves in by tomorrow afternoon. What should we expect next at that point? Well, this is a very complicated case, and there's a fire hose of developments coming nonstop. Here's a couple of them that illustrate how complex it'll be with 19 different people, 19 different sets of lawyers, and 19 different levels of involvement. For example, there's a federal court hearing Monday where former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows is seeking to have his case removed from state court and dismissed altogether, while another defendant, lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro, wants a speedy trial. The district attorney says okay and is now asking for all 19 people, including Trump, to have that trial by the end of October. Oof. It'll be up to a judge to decide that. And Donald Trump has a new lawyer leading the case in Georgia. He's an accomplished defense attorney named Steve Sadow, who's defended rappers and racketeering cases, including the other high-profile RICO case playing out in Atlanta right now with hip-hop artist Young Thug. That's just a small look at what will be happening moving forward. Rappers and racketeering. I like it. That is Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Before candidates even spoke during last night's Republican presidential debate, this song took the stage. It's called Rich Men North of Richmond, and it's sung by a previously unknown artist named Oliver Anthony. The song is now topping the Billboard 100 chart. Dig into the lyrics and you'll find extremist narratives and references to conspiracy theories. Hear that conversation on Morning Edition from NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us here at 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Ahead in about 15 minutes in NPR's quick roundup of science news, recreating Pink Floyd via brain activity. And did human-caused wildfires drive saber-toothed cats to extinction? We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped more than 370 points, just over 1 percent today. The S&P lost nearly 1.4 percent. NASDAQ went down 1.9 percent. In local business news, the estate of a Table Talk Pies heir is donating $4 million to a major charity in Worcester. The Greater Worcester Community Foundation says it'll use the money to fund education, economic development, and refugee resettlement programs. The gift comes from the estate of the oldest daughter of Table Talk co-founder Theodore Tona. The Worcester Company was founded in 1924. This is WBUR.
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Clouds will increase tonight. We might have showers mainly in the wee hours of the morning. The low will be around 64 degrees. We'll have rain tomorrow, possibly a thunderstorm too with a high around 70. Saturday should be partly sunny with temps approaching 80, but there will be a chance of showers. It's 77 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. A federal court ruling earlier this month would allow as many as 30,000 formerly incarcerated people who were convicted of felonies to regain their voting rights in Mississippi. But as Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Michael McEwen reports, the state is looking to overturn that decision on appeal. Mississippians convicted of any one of 22 felonies are prohibited from voting, even after completing their sentences. Veronica Bilbo was previously convicted of a qualifying felony and has been released, but barred from voting for four years. It's what we think of as a fundamental right, you know, as a citizen. And then to have that taken away, when you've done your time, you've been productive, you had zero recidivism, and then, you know, as a Black woman, knowing the price was paid, for us to be able to go and vote, then to find out we can't. It's like eternal punishment. Early this month, a three-judge panel said the Mississippi law was cruel and unusual punishment and in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The majority said Mississippi stands as an outlier among other states that maintain lifetime felon voting bans. In 1974, the last time the U.S. Supreme Court considered the constitutional standing of such laws, 32 states had them. Today, the number is less than half that. That's frankly, very much the argument we made to the court. Attorney John Youngwood represented six Mississippians who'd had their voting rights stripped. The last time the Supreme Court had a case on this issue, the status of the laws in the country were very, very different. The vast majority of states would not permit a former felon to vote. There is now a growing consensus and a firm consensus in the country that forbidding people to vote for the rest of their lives for a crime they commit when they're very young is not appropriate. The state of Mississippi has now appealed the decision, arguing it would, quote, inflict profound damage and widespread confusion. They want the full Fifth Circuit Court to rule. The earlier three-judge panel featured two Democratic nominees, but the full court is often thought of as one of the most conservative in the country. That is cast out over the ruling's future. For NPR News, I'm Michael McEwen in Jackson, Mississippi. Last night, eight of the Republican candidates running for president took the debate stage for the first time. And while they agreed on a lot, one major point of disagreement was Russia's war on Ukraine. Here are candidates Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and Chris Christie in a debate on the Fox News Channel last night. Mr. Ramaswamy, you would not support an increase of funding to Ukraine? I would not. And I think that this is disastrous that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border. I will have Europe pull their weight. Uh, Right now, they're not doing that. If we don't stand up against this type of autocratic 
killing we in the world. We will be next. The elephant not in the room, as the moderator put it, was former President Donald Trump. And in an interview with Tucker Carlson, Trump criticized Biden's handling of the war. That's a war that should end immediately, not because of one side or the other, because hundreds of thousands of people are being killed. Let's talk about what this disagreement could mean for the people fighting and providing aid to the war. NPR's Brian Mann is in Ukraine, just east of Kharkiv, and NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is here in the studio. Hi, guys. Hey, Ari. Hey there, Ari. Tom, how concerned are the war's supporters that skepticism of USAID to Ukraine seems to be growing? Well, right, Ari, we heard from that debate, there's a division within the Republican Party between internationalists like Nikki Haley, who support Ukraine and are concerned about Russian aggression spreading in the so-called American first wing, of course, led by former President Trump. There is concern among Ukraine backers that support could erode, especially on Capitol Hill. Republican Congressman Andy Harris, who, by the way, Ari, is co-chair of the Ukraine caucus, said recently the Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed, does not think Ukraine can win, and he's not sure he'll support more military aid. That has concerned Ukraine supporters like Congressman Adam Smith, the top Democrat on armed services. He told me they will have to work hard to shore up support in the coming months. Now, the U.S. already has provided uh, around $76 billion since the Russian invasion 18 months ago. That's out of $113 billion authorized by Congress. Now, the Biden administration, Ari, is seeking another $40 billion, most of that for military aid. And Brian, when you talk to people in Ukraine, how aware are they that there is not a consensus here in the U.S.? And what would it mean for them if the U.S. did cut aid or tried to force Ukraine to accept a peace deal that gave Russia part of the country? Yeah, all right, people here are watching this really closely, and, and they say uh, any big drawback by the U.S. would be devastating. You know, they've paid an enormous human price resisting Russia's invasion. Uh, also, civilian populations have suffered these very well-documented war crimes. But it's not only Ukrainians watching this debate in the U.S. You know, right now the U.S. leads a big coalition against Moscow, you know, countries like Bulgaria and Poland that are relying on Washington's leadership. If we pulled the plug in Ukraine, it would potentially unravel that coalition. Also important to point out that the U.S. isn't only countering Russia here in Ukraine. Russia's opposed U.S. interests for years in Africa, the Middle East, and in cyberspace. So, you know, giving Putin a win, as Ramaswamy described it, that would resonate well beyond the war zone where I am now. We've been hearing for months about what a struggle Ukraine's counteroffensive has been. Tom, could that failure to make quick, decisive advances on the battlefield further erode U.S. support. No, I think it could. And really from the beginning, Ari, there were doubts in the Pentagon about how much Ukraine could achieve in this counteroffensive by the fall. People I talked with suggested only modest gains. Now, the goal, of course, in in the South is to break the so-called land bridge between Russia and Crimea. That would be a huge achievement and isolate Crimea, Putin's big prize. But so far, the Ukrainians have been making some gains, but face three lines of Russian defenses that are formidable. Landmines are the big problem, tens of thousands of them. Now, the U.S. and Britain have told Ukraine, you're spreading your forces too thin along the front line, and you have to concentrate those troops for a big push, a big punch in the south, using the Western-trained troops to, again, break that land bridge. We'll see if they take that advice, and officials say time is of the essence, because when the fall comes, the rains come, and everything just slows down. Brian, you've been near the front lines. What do the Ukrainians tell you about how their counteroffensive is going? 
Yeah, they, they acknowledge that it's hard. I was with Ukraine's defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, this week, uh, and he, he said, yeah, things are slow. The Russians are actually on the offensive near where I'm at now, Russian troops attacking a Ukrainian city called Kupiansk, uh, triggering a new wave of refugees. Reznikov dismissed that battle as an effort to distract Ukraine and divert troops. It's also worth saying the Ukrainians, while they're struggling right now, they do continue to score small victories. Uh, in the last 24 hours, we saw an amphibious assault. Ukrainian officials say was carried out by their commandos in Russian-occupied uh, Crimea. So while the big fight is grinding and costly, Ukrainians say they are still landing significant blows. And Tom, does that square with what you're hearing from military and other sources in the U.S.? Well, there were mixed messages again, but a Washington think tank is following all this closely, the Institute for the Study of War. They're pretty optimistic about the situation and believe the Ukrainians could soon threaten that second line of Russian defenses, the second of three. But again, we'll just have to see. Now, Congressman Adam Smith told me he's neither pessimistic nor optimistic about the counteroffensive. He said the Ukrainians have well-trained troops, and this will all take a lot of time. But again, if there's little progress by late fall, it will only raise more questions about continued support, especially as a presidential campaign heats up. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Kharkiv, Ukraine, and Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman here in the studio. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you. This is NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes, how much plastic do you use in a week? We'll hear from a reporter who logged her plastics use and we'll find out what she learned. And cooking for astronauts in the days before they take off means making them feel at home and keeping them safe. Well, we might see some showers overnight tonight or early tomorrow morning. We'll have lows in the mid-60s. Then we'll have rain tomorrow, maybe some thunderstorms. Temps will only get up to about 71 degrees. Saturday, a chance of rain, but otherwise partly sunny that day with a high around 80. Sunday doesn't look quite as warm, low to mid-70s with lots of sunshine, about the same for Monday. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Rafael Labarine traveled from Tijuana, Mexico to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. He went for his son. I feel very proud and, and grateful to God because he brings the opportunity and I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Going to the Little League World Series on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Republican Party has long been known for shying away from the topic of climate change, but during the first GOP presidential debate last night, young voters put the spotlight on eight presidential hopefuls, as NPR politics reporter Amena Busteo reports. A student representative of the Young America's Foundation asked candidates how they would calm young voter fears that the Republican Party doesn't care about climate change. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley responded. Is climate change real? Yes, it is. But if you want to go and really change the environment, then we need to start telling China and India that they have to lower their emissions. 
but not all were on the same page. Here's Vivek Ramaswamy. The climate change agenda is a hoax. Nearly 60% of voters ages 18 to 29 who responded to the latest NPR PBS Mars poll agreed addressing climate change should be given priority, even if it risks economic growth. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. In Germany, environmental activists have been out in force today gluing themselves to roads throughout the city of Munich. The activists are demanding lower speed limits and other measures to reduce fossil fuel consumption. NPR's Rob Schmitz has this update. Climate activists belonging to the group Last Generation have been supergluing themselves to roads throughout Munich, causing traffic jams. The activities mark the start of several weeks of planned action in the Bavarian capital in time for the Munich Motor Show starting September 5th. Protesters, as he mentioned, are likely to continue blocking roadways through late August, and security measures have been put in place to help disperse any large crowds from the streets. Protests at oil installations in Germany have disrupted supplies. And in France, thousands of activists and police clashed over water usage, leaving dozens there injured. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Tougher safety regulations are being proposed for gas pipelines as a result of the 2018 deadly explosions in the Merrimack Valley. Federal regulators say the changes will improve the management of gas distribution systems, emergency response plans, and safety. The Merrimack Valley explosions killed a teenager and destroyed or damaged more than 130 properties. A man wanted in Indiana for a murder six years ago was arrested in Cambridge this morning. State police say John Hallett was taken into custody this morning at his apartment on Chester Street. Michigan City, Indiana police obtained an arrest warrant for Hallett for the murder and dismemberment of his roommate. The demolition of an historic inn on Block Island is expected to get underway next month. Last Friday night, a fire ripped through Harborside Inn. The town declared the building unsafe. Firefighters from around Rhode Island were sent by ferry to help fight the flames. The town crier of Provincetown is now considered the best in the U.S. Daniel Gomez Yada has won this year's championship held by the American Guild of Town Criers. Throughout the summer and much of the fall, several days a week at noon, Yada calls out local news. Good citizens of Provincetown, visitors from both far and near, and wash ashores all, gather around and listen to the joyful tidings that I bear. He announces everything from Provincetown government news, tide and weather updates, and residents' birthdays. Yada also greets tourists, promotes local businesses, and walks in parades. He's employed by the Provincetown Chamber of Commerce. While the Red Sox and Astros are in the seventh inning in the final game of their four-game series at Fenway, and the Sox are beating Houston 11-1. to Tonight might bring some showers. Temperatures will dip to the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like a wet Friday. We'll have showers, possibly some thunderstorms. Temps around 70 degrees. A chance of rain Saturday, but we should also see a little sunshine. Saturday's high will be around 80. Mid-70s on Sunday with mostly sunny skies. Then Monday, sunny again, and temps still pleasant in the mid-70s. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. 
More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Time now for this week's Science Roundup from our friends at NPR's Shortwave Podcast. Regina Barber and Aaron Scott are here with us. Hello to both of you. Hey, Elsa. Hello, hello. Okay, so you have brought us three recent science stories that grabbed your attention. What are we looking at this week? How about lessons from wildfires, but from 13,000 years ago? Whoa. And turning brain activity into rock music. Like it. And of course, moon landings, one successful and one not so much. Love it. Okay, let's journey into space first and start with those moon landings. What happened this week? So we just had two countries, Russia and India, attempt to land robotic probes on the moon within days of each other. Russia was first. It tried over the weekend and it failed, adding to the suspense if India would succeed. Then Wednesday, India did it. Its probe landed close to the moon's south pole, and this region of the moon is just really fascinating. What's so special about this area of the moon? So our NPR colleague Jeff Brumfield has been reporting on this story, and he says that this region is near where craters on the moon are in permanent darkness, and scientists hope that we'll find frozen water there. And of course, water is a key resource that could potentially be used for future missions, as, you know, Mm -hmm. drinking water for astronauts, of course, but also the hydrogen and the oxygen that make up water could be broken up for rocket fuel or for breathable air. Whoa. Yeah, and the moon's south pole is a popular place. China's planning a mission there, and the U.S. wants to send humans there as a part of the Artemis program. Huh. Well, like you said, Russia failed in their mission. Do we have any idea of, like, why India was successful here? Well, this Russian mission was the first to go back to the moon since the days of the Soviet Union. They spent decades planning and building this lander because it was a proven Soviet design. But as it was preparing to touch down, the Russians lost contact with it. And when it comes to India, this is actually the country's second attempt at the moon landing after it crashed a lander in 2019. So the trouble is, it's really hard to land on the moon, especially for a probe being steered by a robot. There's basically no atmosphere, so the probe can't gently float down on a parachute like on Mars. They have to use thrusters, and that involves a lot of sophisticated calculations that can be challenging for robots, despite all their fancy sensors. It was actually partly a thruster issue that contributed to India's crash in 2019. And so India's engineers learned from that. They beefed up the probe's software and the hardware, and that likely played a role in their successful landing this time. Okay, well, next up, Aaron, you are moving us from a dark area on the moon mm-hmm. to the band that made the album Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Did you see what I did there? Did you like that transition? I got that. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. We are doing Pink Floyd and Brain Science. Um, a team of scientists wanted to know if they could recreate a Pink Floyd song that someone is listening to just by observing their brain activity. Wait, like mind reading? Yeah, pretty close. Um, Elsa, I'm guessing you know this song. All was just a brick in the wall. Uh, is that the one that goes... 
We don't need no education. Yes, yes, yes. Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what happened is a team led by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, played this song to some epileptic patients who had a bunch of electrodes wired into their brain. Principal investigator Bob Knight explained that it was then like watching a pianist play a piano and reconstructing the song from what keys they played. Wow. We're treating the electrodes in a way like the piano keys. You know, the the sound comes in, goes to your auditory regions, activates brain cells. They generate an electric field. We record that electric field. That's our piano key. Then the researchers fed all the data from those electrode piano keys into a machine learning program to see if they could reconstruct what the patients were hearing. And this is what they got. Wow. <laughs> it's like the band is playing underwater, but uh-huh. I mean, I can almost understand the lyrics, I guess. Yeah, Bob says it would have been a lot more clear if they had more electrodes in each patient. But the Berkeley team thinks that this is really the first time that scientists have been able to reconstruct how the brain hears musical elements like melody and rhythm and intonation just from the neural signals. I mean, I get it's a neat parlor trick of neuroscience, but does it have any practical implications? It does. It does. The long-term goal is an implantable speech device so that people who have trouble speaking because of something like ALS or a stroke can communicate through the device just by thinking about what they want to say. Mm. And Bob says being able to reconstruct music could improve some of these existing devices, which are really quite robotic. It would be like, I love you as opposed to I love you. And I think music, because of its prosodic, emotional, melodic elements, will actually make an eventual implantable assistive device more human. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Let's turn to our last story. Gina, so much of the world right now is dealing with these devastating wildfires. But I understand that you have brought us a story about fires from thousands of years ago. Yeah, 13,000 years ago. Wow. So there is this new study published in Science last week that touches on a debate that's been raging for over 100 years. What caused one of the major extinction events that wiped out large mammals in North America, like dire wolves, North American camels, and the saber-toothed cat? How did they figure this out? So they went to the La Brea tar pits in Southern California, these like bubbling pools of tar that Mm -hmm. animals have been getting stuck in for thousands of years. And this creates fossils that researchers can study today. These scientists dated and analyzed 172 specimens from seven extinct species and one that's actually still around, coyotes. And they looked at environmental data from that same time period to see if there were any links between animals dying off and their environment. So what did all these fossils tell them about the extinction? So I talked to one of the authors of the paper, paleontologist and evolutionary biologist F. Robin O'Keefe. And he said that after looking at the data, there was a clear overlap between mass deaths and wildfires that just jumped out. It was like a line in the sand. I thought we would see like a slow decline going down because people are getting more common, but that's not what happened. This is kind of train wreck. A train wreck because there was such a massive die-off. Wait, so how could they tell that fires in particular caused this massive extinction event? Well, the team could infer wildfire activity by looking at charcoal accumulation, and this was in core samples taken from Lake Elsinore in California. 
they saw an increase of charcoal 30-fold that corresponded to the time Robin said there was a sharp disappearance of species. So fascinating. Can this tell us anything about the fires that are happening now? Yeah, well, Robin says scientists like him are concerned because they've seen this before. A paleoecologist that didn't work on this study named Anthony Barnosky went even further by saying, quote, What we are seeing today, increasing human pressures combined with and actually causing climate change, is like this lesson from the past on steroids. Jeez. Okay, that is Regina Barber and Aaron Scott from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Gina and Aaron, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Across the country, kids are heading back to school, and that looks different in different places. Last year, a small district in Alaska changed its whole calendar so kids could spend more time learning about the culture and traditions of living off the land. Evan Erickson of member station KYUK reports. It's an overcast day this summer in the village of Akiachuk on the Kuskokwim River, about 70 miles inland from the Bering Sea. Five elementary school kids are drifting along on a skiff with a couple of adults. Everybody is focused on a series of red and white buoys attached to a net. That red one right there in front of us, it keeps moving. This is the school's summer culture camp, and the kids are learning about traditional Yupik native ways living in harmony with the land and the values of sharing food, friendship, and knowledge. Today, in the boat with their principal, they're learning to fish for salmon. Populations of several species of salmon on this river have crashed, and this is a rare window when harvesting them with drift nets is allowed. That's a king salmon! The Ubeat School District's Summer Culture Camp is part of an effort to help kids master the subsistence lifestyle the Yupik people have practiced for centuries. I want to fish again. I fish again. This is actually a good spot to fish. On shore, a group of elders shows the students how to process fish at a large cutting table on a patch of grass just off the river. The school's literacy coach, Evelyn Esmalko, wields a large, curved, traditional ulu knife and explains the differences between chum, chinook, and sockeye salmon. Put the king shin one in, red shin one This will be for the uh, winter supply of fish supplement the lunch program. After the fish are cleaned, they are loaded into the back of a beat-up truck to be dropped off at the school's walk-in freezer. Riding in back, Woody Woodgate, who works for the school district, says people here favor indigenous foods. And not really taking away anything from the USDA and the school lunch program, but you know most of that stuff that's on those menus are designed for you know people in big cities or lower 48. The new calendar the school district adopted to better teach local culture allows kids to participate in subsistence food gathering, like fishing and moose hunting. So if we can supplement using fish and and moose, and especially fish and moose that the kids catch. The new calendar means the students begin the school year a week later and they finish 10 days earlier. They make up the difference with an extra half hour of instruction each day. When Principal Baron Sample calls Woodgate from the fishing boat, 
it's clear that the day's salmon fishing activities were a success. Hey, Woody, can you come to the gas station? We'll unload you with what we have and then let the kids go head back up. The UBEAT school district is working on other ways to integrate traditional knowledge into core subjects like math and language so kids can continue harvesting educational opportunities. For NPR News, I'm Evan Erickson in Akiachuk, Alaska. All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, the latest on former President Donald Trump's planned surrender to authorities in Fulton County, Georgia today. And a policy expert discusses implications of the apparent death of the Wagner mercenary group leader in a plane crash in Russia. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. In sports, the Red Sox are topping the Astros 11-1 to in the top of the eighth inning at Fenway. We'll have a chance of showers tonight, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, showers and maybe some thunderstorms. The high will only get to about 71 degrees. A chance of showers on Saturday, otherwise partly sunny with temperatures around 80. Sunday looks mostly sunny in the mid-70s. Sunshine again for Monday with a high around 76. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Porter Square Books, returning to Aeronaut Brewing with a back-to-school grown-up book fair, Sunday, September 3rd from 2 to 6. Details at portersquarebooks.com. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body? Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain, actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. L.A. Times reporter Suzanne Rust pays a lot of attention to the amount of plastic she uses. She's an investigative reporter who covers environmental issues. So she didn't expect to be quite so taken aback when she began keeping a diary of all the plastic in her life. Clippy for my hair, AirPods case, plastic on tea kettle, windows are glass, but casings are vinyl, bird decals on windows, Computer casing, monitor. Suzanne Rust is here to talk about what she learned from her week-long experiment. Hi there. Hey, thanks for having me. There are a lot of things humans do that are not great for the environment. You could have kept a diary of your carbon emissions or your total trash. What interested you specifically about plastic? 
I just feel like every week I'm reading another study from a medical journal about finding microplastics in heart tissue, for instance, or lung tissue or in the meconium of infants. It just, it seems like it's becoming so overwhelming. It's everywhere. It's in me. It's outside of me. I'm breathing it in. It's in the water. You know, where is it all coming from? And just taking a look at what's around me, I thought would be a really good way to sort of look at this and investigate it. And unlike many of us, you've been thinking about this for years. And so what surprised you, despite all the attention that you've already paid to this issue? So I think the thing that just most surprised me is when I sat down to actually chronicle my interaction with plastic every day, it was more than I had imagined. I mean, I think we we all walk around with some sort of awareness, but until you start writing it all down, the level, the amount of plastic around us sort of blew me away and it really required just sitting down and chronicling. You give one specific example of being on an airplane and bringing a reusable cup, which is something that never would have occurred to me. And <laughs> talk about what you observed. So I did. I brought my little metal reusable cup. And uh, as the drink cart went by, I asked if I could have some water out of the big plastic bottle that they had. And I got a funny look and the flight attendant held up a plastic cup, poured water from the plastic bottle into the plastic cup and then poured it into my cup. They said there were hygiene issues. I don't know if it was, you know, particularly me or if this is just sort of a generality <laughs> they do. But But what got me sort of thinking was I looked at the plastic cup that they then put in the garbage and looked at this plane. And I guess there were probably about 120 people on it. And you think the drink cart goes by two or three times. I mean, that's 240, 360 cups that are all just going to get chucked as soon as, as we land. Then, you know, there are probably about 100,000 flights a day around the world. That's a lot of plastic. And this is just one small example. How much of this is about personal individual choices versus systems that produce and encourage us to use plastic, whether or not we would prefer to make a different choice? Well, you know, at the as I was just seeing how much plastic I was using every day, I tried to make an effort to reduce it. But what I realized is as hard as I tried, and I did try pretty hard, I just could not get rid of plastic. I would go to the grocery store and try to you know, buy lettuce not in a plastic box or vegetables not in plastic or pasta not in a plastic box, on and on and on. And there was really no way that I could function without some sort of plastic in my shopping cart. So environmentalists would tell you it can't all be about consumer choice because we can't choose it because it's not an option. So it has to be some sort of system, whether it's governments putting caps on the plastic industry and packaging companies about how much plastic they can use, whether it's voluntary decisions by the plastic industry and packaging. But something has to happen that allows a consumer to avoid plastic if they choose. And right now it's just not an option. Suzanne Rust is an investigative reporter covering environmental issues for the L.A. Times. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Four astronauts head for the International Space Station early tomorrow morning. And as they prepare, NASA's participants have been quarantining at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. They have their own bedrooms, a gym, even personal chefs. So what do they eat in there? From member station WMFE, Brendan Byrne reports. The tiny galley kitchen at Kennedy Space Center's astronaut crew quarters looks just like any commercial restaurant. 
It's got all the staples like a convection oven, a range, and a dishwasher. But what sets this place apart is the tableware. All the unique plates. These have been around since Mercury days. Yeah. Mercury days. Bill Farina's chef's jacket is covered in mission patches as he holds plates that have been around since the 1960s. He's one of the chefs who cooks for astronauts before their mission to keep the crew away from any germs that might make them sick or germs they might bring up to the space station, they enter a nearly two-week quarantine, first at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, then here in Florida, just a few miles from the rocket that will take them to orbit. Farina's job is to keep them fed. And he does that with fellow chef Joe Alfano. They get their recipes from NASA's astronaut office, but they do have some creative liberties. Their menus reflect the likes of the astronauts and their cultural backgrounds. We've done everything from Thai food to Eggs Benedict, to, you know, a piece of fresh fish from Florida, uh, burgers, steaks, I mean, you name it, shepherd's pies, uh, something that their mother used to make. Quarantining ahead of their upcoming mission is NASA's Crew 7, four space flyers from the U.S., Denmark, Japan, and Russia. They live in what looks like a college dorm, where they'll make final preparations, participate in briefings, visit family, and suit up before flight. This facility at KSC has been around since the Apollo moon missions. The pre-flight tradition goes back to NASA's early days of human spaceflight, says historian and CollectSpace.com editor Robert Perlman. For the agency's first human launch in 1961, Alan Shepard had a breakfast of steak and eggs. The idea was to have a meal that was filling and, and um, rich in protein, um, because uh, he might be waiting to launch for uh, a considerable amount of time. They didn't want him to get hungry again, um, but also low residue um, because there was no bathroom on board the spacecraft. That meal tradition continued through Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and the space shuttle program, with some astronauts asking for steak and eggs ahead of their mission. But the menu has grown. Janet Cavandi is a retired NASA astronaut who flew on three shuttle missions. She says while the menu is unique to each crew, one item remains the same. There are always cookie jars full of cookies, even though those are probably not the best thing for you just before you go fly. Chef Farino is baking dozens of those cookies for this upcoming crew. As a lifelong Florida Space Coast resident who followed NASA since childhood, cooking for astronauts is a treat. Never, never, never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine that uh, I would I would be here and cooking for these, I, I call them true American heroes. And after Farino and fellow chef Joe Alfano cook that last meal for the crew before their flight, the team will wash those NASA dishes, clean that small galley kitchen, and start planning the menu for the next group of astronauts to dine with them. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. 
From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming to City Space on Saturday, September 9th. Three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky for a special evening of poetry featuring jazz performances. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Clouds will move in tonight. We could have some showers, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, more rain, and we might have some thunderstorms. Tomorrow's high around 70. Then a chance of showers Saturday. Some sunshine, too. High Saturday approaching 80 degrees. It's 77 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia experts are reflecting on Vladimir Putin and any possible connection to the plane crash that may have killed his ally-turned-rival Yevgeny Prigozhin. Putin you know, likes to basically wait for his own time and uh, method of uh, choosing to have revenge on people who have crossed him. It's Thursday, August 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Close to 1,000 people are still unaccounted for after the Maui wildfires, and loved ones are having to come to terms with the fact that some remains may not be recovered because of the fire's intensity. We'll have the latest. Plus, we'll analyze the dueling GOP narratives as the presidential debate season kicks off with the frontrunner not there. Is this what we're going to be focusing on I'm relieved. going we forward? The yeah. rehashing of this? I'll yes. tell you, Governor the DeSantis. Democrats would love that. And climate change degrades ancient cave art along China's historic Silk Road. It's 5.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. U.S. officials are saying a preliminary assessment has found a plane crash near Moscow likely claimed the life of Wagner militia group leader Yevgeny Prezgozhin. However, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Patrick Ryder says contrary to some reports, they don't believe a surface-to-air missile brought down the business jet. We don't have any information to indicate right now. Um, The press reporting uh, stating that there was some type of surface-to-air missile that took down the plane. We assess that information to be inaccurate. Officials have said, though, they believe there was some type of explosion. The White House has declined to comment. Brzgozhin founded and led the Wagner private military group, which staged a brief mutiny against Russian leadership in June. Former President Donald Trump has switched up his legal team ahead of his expected surrender in Georgia tonight. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports Trump is set to be booked at the Fulton County Jail after being indicted earlier this month for his alleged efforts to overturn the state results of the 2020 election. As the racketeering case against former President Trump enters a new phase, he has a new head lawyer. Steve Sadow is a high-profile defense attorney known for defending rappers like Rick Ross and T.I. and for deep knowledge defending against the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. Most recently, he secured a plea deal for rapper Gunna in the other big RICO case in Atlanta against the artist Young Thug. 
Trump is expected to surrender to the Fulton County Jail this evening. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Meanwhile, House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan says he is launching an investigation into the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports Jordan is asking about coordination between state and federal officials. Jordan's Wednesday letter to Willis demands information and communications between her office and Justice Department officials, including special counsel Jack Smith. It comes on the day former President Trump will surrender at the Fulton County Jail for processing on criminal charges related to the 2020 election. Jordan writes that Willis's indictment of Trump raises serious concerns about whether her case is politically motivated. Back in July, Willis told Georgia station WABE she has not coordinated with Jack Smith. Jordan gave a September 7th deadline for information to be turned over to the committee. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. T-Mobile is the latest big company to wield the jobs-cutting acts. The wireless carrier announced plans to cut 5,000 jobs, roughly 7% of its workforce. In an email to employees, which was shared in a regulatory filing, the company says the layoffs, which will be carried out over the next five weeks, will affect workers across the country, particularly those in corporate and back-office jobs. Wall Street is continuing with its up-and-down trading pattern. The Dow was down more than 1% today. The Nasdaq and the S&P fell by similar amounts. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. As former President Donald Trump turns himself in to Georgia authorities today, the chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party calls the timing of the indictments in the four criminal cases against Trump suspicious. But Amy Carnevale says she doesn't think Trump's legal problems will hurt his re-election bid. You've seen him grow in the poll numbers in the Republican Party and um, across America, really, when when these indictments are pursued. So I, I suspect that today, um, you know, you'll see a bump in his poll numbers. You'll see his fundraising increase. Carnevale says she plans to support the Republican nominee. If that's Trump, she says her support won't waver even if he's convicted of the charges he faces. The MBTA announced today it'll shut down part of the red line for two weeks in October. From October 14th until the 29th, riders on the Ashmont branch between JFK UMass and Ashmont Station and the Mattapan, Mattapan line between Ashmont and Mattapan stations will take buses. That's because tracks are being replaced. The MBTA says those tracks are some of the oldest in the system. People who take the orange line might have a better commute next week. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez explains why. For orange line riders frustrated with slow zones and long wait times between trains, MBTA general manager and CEO Phil Eng has some news for you. We will be adding another train set to the orange line. This will reduce headways to nine minutes during peak times. The new car is built in Springfield and is part of the contract with a Chinese manufacturer to deliver 400 new red and orange line cars. By early this year, less than 100 had been delivered. The Healy administration is raising questions about the contract. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. In sports, the Red Sox are leading the Astros 13-1 in the bottom of the eighth inning at Fenway. It's the final game in a four-game series. Well, clouds will increase tonight. We might have some showers, mainly in the wee hours of the morning. The low will be around 64 degrees. We'll have rain tomorrow, possibly a thunderstorm, too, with a high around 70. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. 
More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Former President Trump said he will turn himself in at 7.30 p.m. Eastern this evening at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta. Trump will be booked and have his photo taken and then leave the facility. He faces 13 felony counts in Georgia related to efforts to overturn the result of the 2020 presidential election. This is, of course, Trump's fourth indictment since this spring. And joining us now to talk about Trump's legal troubles is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Hey, Carrie. Hey there. Okay, so what's different to you, Carrie, about this case in Georgia compared to the other three cases that Trump's been indicted in? This Georgia case is certainly bigger. There are 19 defendants in all. It's also more more sprawling in terms of the racketeering charge that Trump and others face and the actions that are outlined and the geography because these charges mention not just activity in Georgia, but also some other swing states in 2020, Mm -hmm. including things like that fake elector scheme, the alleged pressuring of Georgia Secretary of State Braffensberger and former Vice President Mike Pence, allegations of tampering with voting machines in another part of Georgia. And then, of course, intimidating the election worker, Ruby Freeman, who testified she had threats against her life. Okay. Well, with respect to the two federal cases against Trump led by special counsel Jack Smith, what is the status of those two cases at this point? Sure. The first case centers around war plans and other secrets the FBI found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. There, Trump is charged with retaining defense information and obstruction of justice for refusing to return papers that belong to the government. He now has two co-defendants in that case, his body man, Walt Nauta, and a -a Mar-a-Lago facilities manager named Carlos de Oliveira. A third man, an IT worker, changed his story to prosecutors after he got a new lawyer, an independent attorney with no financial ties to Donald Trump. That man told prosecutors Trump and the others allegedly tried to get him to destroy security footage. He's going to be a likely witness at the trial next year. And then also the second case relates to Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Washington, D.C. Right. In that case, Trump wants a trial in 2026. Prosecutors say no way. They want to be ready in January 2024. And there's going to be a hearing here in D.C. on Monday where the judge is going to set a trial date. Okay. So during this process, I mean, the former president has certainly tested the tolerance of the judiciary and maybe even of his own lawyers. I'm thinking here of Trump's social media posts in this instance. How is that spilling over into the courtroom so far? The judge in Washington, D.C., Tanya Chutkin, has already warned Donald Trump's lawyers some of his First Amendment rights need to yield to restrictions that come with being a criminal defendant in any case. She says that means not intimidating witnesses like Mike Pence and not tainting the jury pool. She says she's going to move up the trial date in D.C. if Trump keeps posting inflammatory language. And in Georgia, Trump's conditions of release are even tighter when it comes to talking outside of court. This could be a real test of the legal system since Donald Trump may keep posting and talking on the campaign trail no matter what these courts are telling him. That's right. Well, now, one of the people indicted along with Trump in the Georgia case is former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. I know that Meadows is asking to get his case moved to federal court. Let me ask you, what difference would that make? And could Trump do something similar? 
There's a hearing early next week in federal court in Georgia over Mark Meadows' bid to move his case into federal court. The district attorney in Fulton County, Fonnie Willis, says um, it's not Meadows' actions in this case were not part of his job in the government at the time. Trump may well try to move his case to federal court, too. Uh, The jury pool may be more friendly to Donald Trump in federal court, but we're going to have to see what that court decides next week. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. We don't know what caused a private plane to crash in Russia yesterday, killing all 10 people on board. We do know that Yevgeny Prigozhin was on the flight manifest. He led a coup attempt against Russian President Vladimir Putin in June. And today, Putin expressed condolences to the families of those killed in the plane crash. He reminisced about his long acquaintance with the head of the Wagner mercenary group and referred to Prigozhin in the past tense. So was this Putin's revenge against the man who threatened his power? Fiona Hill is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she has worked as a White House advisor on Russia. She's also written extensively about Putin. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks so much, Ari. Great to be with you. Let's start with two very basic questions. Do you believe that Prigozhin is dead? And do you believe that Putin was behind it? Well, I think on uh, both of those scores, the answer would be yes uh, right now. I think there was something of a question about that until Putin made the comments that you yourself have uh, just relayed uh, to uh, to the audience here. There was all kinds of speculation bouncing around the internet, you know, a lot of memes as well as, you know, more serious analysis about, you know, has he has he really gone? Uh, a lot of people wanting to kind of wait to comment until they had some sort of DNA evidence, uh, for example. But, you know, here you have Putin, as you said, referring to him in the past tense making uh, some commentary on his past relationship with him. That's vintage Putin. And then the second, you know, kind of question, uh, which I'm sure that most uh, other commentators uh, have also agreed in the affirmative with, is was Putin behind it? You know, absolutely. You know, you have to recall that two months ago, almost exactly to the moment that uh, Prigozhin plummets uh, from the sky in this plane, uh, he was doing this uh, crazy march towards Moscow, and in the course of which he shot down a plane, mm-hmm. uh, or his people shot down a plane with uh, 13 Russian servicemen on. And, you know, within the Russian system, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and, you know, a certain amount of vengeance, you know, is is, uh, is baked in. So at this point, it wouldn't be just Putin and those immediate people around him who would want to see the demise of uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. There'd also be want from the uniformed military, certainly from the Air Force, some kind of accounting for what he did then. Not to make light of someone's death, but does this seem a, a little bit in your face and crass for for a KGB guy who is known to serve his enemies polonium laced tea and help them out of open windows. Well, this is the ultimate window, isn't it? It's the big window in the sky. So, you know, you can uh, put that into that uh, same category. And of course, it's crass. It's, you know, deliberately showy. It's demonstrative. We also have to put this in the context of the poisoning of uh, Alexei Navalny uh, with polonium in his underpants, which, you know, has a, a element of the absurd as well as the horrific about it. And of course, you know, the, the brutal assassination of uh, Boris Nemtsov on a bridge within uh, sight of the Kremlin walls. 
So, you know, this is par for the course, unfortunately, in uh, Russia. Many people have referred repeatedly to uh, sudden Russian death syndrome and all of these gruesome ways in which uh, people meet their end at the hands of the state and people related to it. It's meant to be like that to get attention, everyone's attention at home and abroad, so that we're just all fully cognizant of what Russia is capable of, at least the people who are ruling Russia are capable of. The coup attempt was seen as a serious blow to Putin's hold on power. Do you think this restores him to the former level of strength? Well, look, it's something that people have been anticipating all along. And I think there has been a lot of caution from all kinds of people who watch events in Russia very closely, you know, basically warning, you know, for some time now, don't count Putin out. And this is his message uh, to uh, domestic critics, uh, to all of uh, the international community, don't count me out. And, you know, the fact that he waited, uh, you know, for two months, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll find out more information about this as we go along, uh, really emphasizes that. Again, this is what Putin is trying to project right now, is a man who can do things on his own timescale. Yeah. Prigozhin had this massive private army at his disposal. And so what do you think the mercenaries of the Wagner group do now? You know, the Wagner group has served many purposes in terms of its mercenary uh, and mythical um, status and, you know, real things that they've done and then the propaganda and uh, scare factor uh, effects that have been uh, surrounding it. And what I would imagine is it gets uh, reconstituted in some form. So I would just say, you know, watch this space. And certainly there will be a great desire of the state to pick up uh, the uh, very well-trained and experienced servicemen the contract forces of the Wagner Group. In fact, that is one of the factors that already precipitated the whole uh, debacle and spectacle of Prigozhin's putsch two months ago was already the reports that the uh, Kremlin and the Defence Ministry were trying to take all of the Wagner forces into the regular uniform military. And so do you think the Wagner Group gets reconstituted under the umbrella of the Russian armed forces or in a way that could continue to pose a threat to Putin? Well, it won't be reconstituted in a way that poses a threat to Putin in terms of the plans of the Kremlin to reconstitute it. But we can be sure that there will be some reorganization and some way of trying to use the same off the books, although we now know that was completely on the books methods. Uh, using mercenary fighters and more flexible forces in some way. So I think, you know, the Russians have seen that this is pretty effective and can be uh, very efficient and, you know, kind of a, a totally different way of doing things. But there will probably be much more of a desire to have a tighter grip uh, on future forces by the uh, by the Central Defence Ministry and by people in the Kremlin rather than giving them uh, basically a loose rein, a longer leash, as uh, was the case with Wagner. However, uh, there may still be some threats to Putin from people associated with the Wagner group. So I would uh, also suggest that we watch very closely, you know, to see what happens next in terms of other assassinations, mysterious disappearances, We've heard about Sarovikin, the general who was close to Prigozhin being uh, demoted. Let's, you know, watch his fate. There could be a lot of clearing up here, which has happened again repeatedly over uh, the last uh, few decades under the Putin uh, regime in, in, in Russia. Clearing up, quite a euphemism. Fiona Hill is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much. No, thank you so much, Jerry.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Former President Trump is expected to surrender tonight in Atlanta. He's facing felony counts related to efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election result. Stay with 90.9 WBUR and NPR tonight for special coverage of the expected booking as it unfolds. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. On Wall Street, the Dow went down more than 370 points, just over 1% today. The S&P dipped 1.4%. NASDAQ lost 1.9%. In other business news, National Grid says there's no indication financial data or account passwords of its customers have been exposed after a data breach. The utility is blaming it on a cyber attack that hit a third-party service the company uses. National Grid says some basic information, including names, contact information, account numbers, and usage data have been compromised. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Closes September 4th, icaboston.org. Listen to WBUR anywhere you go this summer. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Taking a look at the forecast tonight might bring some showers. Temperatures will dip to the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like a wet Friday. We'll have showers, possibly some thunderstorms, temps around 70 degrees. A chance of rain Saturday, but we should also see a little sunshine. Saturday's high will be around 80. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. On Maui, authorities are pleading with the public to be patient, as forensics teams have now been working for about two weeks trying to find bodies after the deadly wildfire. 49 of the more than 100 found dead so far have now been identified. But as NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, teams are making slow progress due to how hot the fires burned. Commander Frank Sebastian is leading a federal team of more than two dozen pathologists, forensic dentists, and coroners who have mobilized here from around the U.S. to help the overwhelmed Maui County Coroner's Office. It's a huge challenge trying to make IDs when the fire incinerated so much evidence. In this case, that's a pretty difficult task due to the condition of the remains. When you're dealing with, you know, with burns, uh, you have a lot of destruction of tissue, and it becomes a very painstaking process to kind of reassemble that. If they're lucky, they have DNA samples to work off or dental records given to the teams by families of those who are unaccounted for. Commander Sebastian sounds stoic and matter-of-fact, but he knows things here are grim. Those of us that have been involved in this type of response over the years, I mean, we've been to Katrina, we've been to other wildfires, 
but this is a very devastating response. Now, the majority of the burned area has been searched, but teams are still working through some of the bigger buildings. Not even a few hundred yards from where Sebastian is talking to us in Lahaina, you can see the devastation, twisted down power lines, only the cement elevator shafts left standing from what appears to have been an apartment building. Uh, just charred remains and rubble from here at least a mile or so down to the, the sea itself. And it still smells like uh, smoke and ash right here where I'm standing. We were here since the 8th on the night of the fire. Uh, we were here, we landed, boots on ground, we were around uh, 2,100. Sergeant Manuel Soko is with a U.S. Army search and extraction team. They've been working more than 14 straight days now. They clear debris in front of the canine units, the dogs that are trained to then go in and search for bodies. Soko is from Maui. His extended family lost their homes, as did several guys on his team. But the work must go on. We're pretty resilient, high morale. We're, we don't... We always support each other. The boss, Lieutenant Ryan Edgar, who's usually based on Oahu, says Soko is being humble. Myself and members of the team are experiencing things that you don't typically experience. This is stressful, and these guys are working in dangerous situations in a place that a lot of them call home. But he says they have a lot of counselors around to talk to while they do this difficult job. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Edgar knows so many fire survivors here are still desperate for some news. We're here to support the people of Lahaina. The best we can do is uh, help bring closure to them by identifying victims, as many of them as we can. Maui's police chief this week said that some victims may never be accounted for. That's not surprising to Kurt Hanthorne, who was standing in a long line at the post office in Lahaina, picking up his mail for the first time in two weeks. Seven of my friends died in the fires, and I'm sure that'll increase as time goes on. It's hard to process, you know, it's hard to focus on what we need, what I, you know, what I need to do every day. Honestly, I gotta write a note to remind myself to bathe. Hanthorne is shaken, but also frustrated that some of his neighbors are getting ugly on social media. Pointing blame, it's the electric company's fault, it's the county's fault, it's Joe Biden's fault, it's everybody's fault. They want an easy answer, and the fact of the matter is, I saw it from beginning to end, and it moves so fast, like a blowtorch. And the recovery here, whether it's searching for loved ones or just removing debris, will be anything but fast. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Maui. The Dog Days of Summer bring a movie about a girl's complicated summer. The film is called Scrapper, and critic Bob Mondello says that's a pretty good description of the child at its center. Even if her pal Ali is something less than the world's best lookout, 12-year-old Georgie is quite an accomplished bicycle thief. Hi, sorry, that's my bike. And a bit of a con artist. Oh, um, hi there. We were just making sure that all of these bikes were road safe. Oh, yours isn't, by the way. Since Georgie's single mom died a few months back, she's been fending for herself, stealing bikes for rent money, while fending off Britain's social services with an assist from a somewhat reluctant convenience store clerk. Josh, could you do me one favor? No more voice recordings. Oh, but you're so good at them. What do you want me to say? Georgie is doing great at school, thanks. Georgie's doing great at school, thanks. 
Say it like you mean it, then. <clears throat> Georgie's doing great at school, thanks. Oh, that's amazing. That was so good. Um, we are thinking of getting a hamster. When social workers call, this allows Georgie to put her uncle, Winston Churchill, on the phone. We're thinking of getting a hamster. Hamster? I mean, great, yeah. Good for you, good for you. Uh, how's Georgie getting on? We are eating spaghetti bolognese today. I find that cheers me up, yeah. Considering she's just lost her mom, Georgie, played with Pluck to Spare by first-timer Lola Campbell, seems resilient and self-sufficient on her own. There are little tells she's not okay, her mom's mug still untouched, the sofa cushions never moved from the way she liked them. But Georgie's read up and figures she's gotten through denial, anger, and bargaining, and just has two stages of grief to go when a tall stranger hops her back wall. <laughs> He's Aussie. Who's asking? Jason. And your dad. The dad who disappeared about the time Georgie was born. Are you living on your own then? No. Can I come in for a chat? Get out! Right, so I'll tell the social there's a 12-year-old living on her own, shall I? He actually doesn't seem a bad sort, as played by lad-like Harris Dickinson, and soon he's cooking, Georgie loses a tooth on some crusty garlic bread, and cleaning, and inevitably arguing. What are you here for now? I told you, I heard about your mum passing, and I wanted to get to know you. After 12 years? How come you didn't want to know me 12 years ago? Because we were young, like we weren't getting along, she told me to leave. You're a liar! I ain't surprised no one stuck around for you, you know that. Rough start, but Jason's a decent lookout, and he knows about filing off bike serial numbers. Think Fagan to Georgie's artful dodger. I mean, trust him? Not even when she's sleeping. What are you doing? Nothing. What are you awake for? You nicking my money? What? No. I was looking for your tooth. Why would I put my tooth underneath my pillow? For the tooth fairy. What? Put your tooth under the pillow and then the tooth fairy gives you a couple of quid, don't she? Does she? Yeah. She's never done that before. Really? She must owe me like 20 quid then. Always working the angles, is Georgie. First-time writer-director Charlotte Regan makes it clear that the title Scrapper is meant to apply to both the main characters. Her pastel kitchen sink drama is sort of an adolescent coming-of-age story turned upside down. Jason's the one who needs to grow up and be a father so that Georgie can finally let go and be a kid. I'm Bob Mandello. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll have a wrap-up of opening statements in the last criminal trial connected to the failed plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Clouds will move in tonight. We could have some rain in the early morning, temps in the mid-60s overnight. Tomorrow, rain, and we might have some thunderstorms. Tomorrow's high around 70 degrees. We'll have a chance of showers Saturday, but some sunshine that day, too. High Saturday approaching 80 degrees. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. You're listening to WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. And DEC, working with CEOs, business leaders, and industry experts with a goal of crafting clear, authentic presentations. More at presentationsbydeck.com. Rafael Laverine traveled from Tijuana, Mexico to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. He went for his son. I feel very proud and, and grateful to God because he gave me the opportunity and I'm so happy, I'm so happy. Going to the Little League World Series on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former President Donald Trump is set to turn himself into authorities in Fulton County, Georgia, later this evening. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has more on what to expect. Unlike in the other criminal cases involving Trump, the former president will have a mugshot taken as he's processed. He is also expected to pay bond, just like every other defendant in Fulton County. On Monday, a judge approved an agreement that set Trump's bond at $200,000. The former president is facing 13 felony charges for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. So far, more than half of the 18 co-defendants in this case have turned themselves in to Fulton County ahead of a Friday deadline. This is the fourth criminal case facing Trump ahead of the 2024 election. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. In Hawaii, Maui County is suing the state public utility company there over the fires that leveled the historic town of Lahaina more than two weeks ago, killing at least 115 people. And as unknown and an unknown number of residents still remain missing, NPR's Greg Allen says several lawsuits have been filed against the utility company. Hawaiian Electric is working to restore power, but at the same time is facing tough questions about its possible role in starting the fire. Some residents in West Maui, including some who have videos, say they saw fires started by energized downed power lines. Several lawsuits have been filed, including one by Maui County that cite the company for negligence. That's NPR's Greg Allen. The suit says the utility had a duty to properly maintain and repair its transmission lines and other equipment, including keeping vegetation properly trimmed around utility poles to prevent contact with overhead power lines. The lawsuit cited other major utility fires in California that were sparked during high wind events. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower today. The Dow was down more than 300 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Community college is now free in Massachusetts under some conditions. The Mass Reconnect program allows adults over 25 without a prior degree to pursue an associate's degree or certificate at one of the state's 15 community colleges. WBUR's Max Larkin reports the governor was out today promoting the initiative. Governor Maura Healey called the program a long-term investment in access to higher education and the state economy during an event at Mass Bay Community College. It's also an investment in students like Danita Menz. Menz put off a certification in interior design at Mass Bay due to the cost of tuition and her new obligations as a parent. I had to take a break because of my child, and if I didn't, I wouldn't have gotten this opportunity. To have this financial burden lifted is going to be life-changing for me. 
Healy said she expects the program to serve 8,000 students in its first year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. More than 120,000 people have lost their mass health insurance since the state began reviewing every member's eligibility this past spring. Mass health members have to renew their coverage because a federal pandemic policy that loosened criteria to qualify for Medicaid has ended. Those who lose mass health may qualify for subsidies and can enroll in private health plans. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band will play to a huge crowd at Gillette Stadium tonight. It's the first of two concerts. The boss last performed at Gillette almost seven years ago. At that concert, he played for over four hours past the town-imposed curfew. The second show is Saturday night. Well, it was a blowout win for the Red Sox this afternoon. They clobbered the Astros 17-1 in Houston. That means they tied up the four-game series. The Sox return home and face the Dodgers tomorrow. We'll have a chance of showers overnight tonight, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, showers, maybe some thunderstorms. The high will only get to about 71 degrees tomorrow. A chance of showers on Saturday, otherwise partly sunny with temperatures around 80. Sunday looks mostly sunny in the mid-70s, then sunshine again for Monday with a high around 76. You're listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It was a tale of two Republican primaries last night. The GOP held its first debate in Milwaukee, hosted by Fox News. Candidates talked about everything from the economy and foreign policy to abortion and crime. Eight Republican candidates have qualified and have chosen to be here on our debate stage tonight. Of course, former President Donald Trump chose not to be there. The frontrunner released his own counter-programming on social media site X, an interview with former Fox News personality Tucker Carlson. And I'm saying, do I sit there for an hour or two hours, whatever it's going to be, and uh, get harassed by people that shouldn't even be running for president? Should I be doing that? The interview was a direct shot both at Fox News and the party establishment targets Trump has publicly feuded with in the past. For a breakdown of these dueling Republican narratives, we're joined by NPR's David Folkenflik and Domenico Montanaro. Good to have you both here. Hey, Ari. Good to be here. Hey, Ari. Uh, Domenico, to start with the debate, eight Republicans on stage without Trump. What did that look like? I mean, it was a little weird. <laughs> it was weird to see a, what a GOP primary might look like if Trump decided not to run for another term um, and wouldn't be part of this primary. You know, it was maybe even odder, though, to see that then in this debate, in the absence of Trump, that it was dominated by Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, a guy who's 38 years old, former tech CEO, not a household name in politics before this campaign. He really found himself center stage because he's polling third, even though that's only around 10 percent, so not very much. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was supposed to be the guy, you know, he was supposed to be the principal alternative to Trump, but his campaign's really been sputtering. He's been, he was largely ignored during 
during the debate. The other candidates wound up mostly targeting Ramaswamy, and that included Nikki Haley, the former Trump UN ambassador, who she got into it with Ramaswamy over foreign policy. Overall, she had a pretty good night, but she's been lagging when it comes to money, hasn't gotten much attention for her campaign since the early weeks of it. And meanwhile, on the social media site, formerly known as Twitter, Donald Trump was going one-on-one with Tucker Carlson. David, what did that look like? Well, I'd say there are two elements we should pay attention to. Let's first look at the content of it. Tucker Carlson was there, a genial, incredibly uh, warm. I think Timothy O'Brien, one of uh, the chroniclers of Trump over the years, basically called it like a frat boy rapport. And he set him up with one softball after another. But if you really drilled down, the content felt pretty nihilist. It was almost as though he was goading Trump into embracing the idea that violence was imminent on the political scenes. Let's play a couple clips that compresses several of the questions at once. Do you think it's possible that Epstein was killed? Are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? So what's next after, you know, try to put you in prison for the rest of your life? That's not working. So, like, don't they have to kill you now? A lot of talk of killing. Yeah, uh, again and again with the idea of violence and politics being in the same sphere. So that's the content of it and also the context of it. Tucker Carlson is a guy who was ousted by Fox from his hit primetime program last spring, just days after Fox had to pay almost $500 million because several of its hosts embraced Trump's lies about the 2020 election, the claim of fraud. Carlson's trying to say, I'm going to be relevant. I'm going to still have a voice in conservative politics. I'm going to make money. Here's how I'm going to do it. Not by accident. He started at uh, five minutes before the debate start time, trying to upstage Fox and giving Trump an opportunity to go after Fox as well. And back in Milwaukee, there was an expectation that Trump's absence would dominate the debate. I mean, Fox News host and moderator Brett Baer called Trump the elephant that is not in the room. So, Domenico, how much did his absence uh, define the evening? Yeah, I mean, the air of Trump clearly uh, was dominant. But, you know, for almost the first, the entire first hour, um, he wasn't really mentioned at all. It was like the bizarro universe of the GOP primary, you know, but then we were all brought back to reality when they did start to talk about Trump. And at one point, the moderator, Brett Baer, one of the moderators, had to turn around and scold the crowd, telling them, let's just get through this. Like, in other words, none of us wants to be talking about this. I know you don't want to hear criticism of Trump, but we have to. So come on. It was really interesting, though, with Trump not there. You did see some of the risk of him not being there because everyone except Ramaswamy backed up former Vice President Mike Pence for, they said, doing the right thing on January 6th in not bowing to Trump's pressure to try and throw out the election results, even if somewhat reluctantly. Here's this exchange between Pence and DeSantis. I think the American people deserve to know whether everyone on this stage agrees that I kept my oath to the Constitution that day. There's we, no we more important duty. So, so answer the question. The thing. I've, I've answered this before. So yes. Now, why are we, he, Mike, Mike did his duty. I got no beef with him, but here's the thing. Is this <laughs> what we're gonna be focusing on? I'm relieved. Going we forward, hold. the yeah. rehashing of this? I'll yes. tell you, Governor the DeSantis. Democrats would love that. Well, you know, and they weren't focused mostly on that. That was just one segment. But you have to imagine that that exchange uh, would have gone very differently if Trump was there. Hmm. And where Trump was on X, a lot of people were watching. And so, David, if this was meant to be counter-programming, was it a win for Trump, for Carlson? How do you rate it? 
Well, look, the the views count on X or what used to be tr- Twitter is impressive, but that number, uh, two hundred thirty five million, when you last look, is incredibly misleading and inflated. It's really almost if you stumble across it, uh, scrolling through it on the street or in an elevator, you're going to be counted as well. But this helps Carlson stay relevant, although really more so in the lead up to the debate rather than after. I don't think a lot of people are talking about moments from that interview as incredibly integral to our understanding of what's about to happen in this election. But step back; it allowed Trump to retain media attention in the buildup to a debate in which he was not going to pay attention. And think of the other big story today. Donald Trump is being processed for you know felonies in Fulton County, Georgia, over trying to block the due election proceeds in the state of Georgia. Uh, you know, he gets to both uh, kind of dampen attention to the debates before it and after it. And from the perspective of not politics, but television, um, how did Fox do in the battle for eyeballs? In the battle for eyeballs, actually, I think they significantly beat expectations. I think it was about 12.8 million people, almost 13 million people, if you combine both on Fox proper and on uh, Fox Business Network. That's really on the high end of debates not involving Donald Trump. Yet there were moments where you saw the two hosts, uh, Martha McCallum and uh, Brett Baer, really struggling to contain candidates who themselves weren't Donald Trump, not themselves steamrollers. Here's a little listen of what it sounded like. Same, We're going to do it in 2024. Same question. Do you never vote in a presidential election until okay. 2024? I, I will answer that. This, I will answer that. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. 30 yeah. 30 second quick answer. You guys have to get control of this debate. Everybody's going to get control of this debate. Listen, We're getting control of the debate. This is a lightning round, not rolling thunder. Great line. I'm not sure they did quite get control of the debate, but for a dominant player like Fox in conservative circles, it didn't really have control even of these lesser tier of candidates. And so, Domenico, what does this split screen that we saw tell us about the current state of the Republican Party? Well, I mean, there's still Trump and there's everyone else. Even though Trump didn't get the kind of attention he would have liked to have gotten out of uh, his uh interview on X. You know, it's been pretty clear. It was glaring last night. Uh, Trump is betting that this party uh, of one uh, is him, you know, and with or without Fox News's help, figuring that he could do it himself. NPR's Domenico Montanaro and David Folkenflik, thank you both. You're welcome. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Most abortions in the U.S. still happen in clinics, but some patients must be treated in a hospital because their medical conditions put them at high risk. Now that more than a dozen states ban abortions, some of those high-risk patients are crossing state lines for care. From member station WBEZ in Chicago, Kristen Schorsch explains what's at stake both for these patients and the hospitals they visit. The patient was about 22 weeks pregnant when she learned her baby boy was in grave danger. He didn't have kidneys, and his lungs wouldn't develop. If he survived birth, he would struggle to breathe and die within hours. She says when she found out, she didn't stop crying for weeks. The whole world felt heavy. You don't think straight. You don't understand. Not something anybody should have to go through. It's not easy losing somebody you love. This patient lives in Missouri which is one of the strictest abortion bans in the nation. We're not using her name, 
because she's afraid of repercussions in her community or being harmed if anyone were to find out. After the diagnosis, doctors told this patient her life was not in immediate danger. But they also pointed out the risks of staying pregnant. And in her family, there's a history of hemorrhaging while giving birth. They said if I start having heavy bleeding, they would have to remove my uterus. And that scared me a lot because I want to have more kids. She decided to end the pregnancy. Her doctors in Missouri told her it was the safest option, but they would not do it. Doctors in states with bans are afraid of losing their licenses or going to jail. That's despite the fact that all of the state abortion bans have exceptions to save the life of the mother, including Missouri's. Still, doctors are sending patients with life-threatening complications out of state. Many end up at hospitals in Illinois. Dr. Laura Larson works at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I'm constantly hearing stories from my partners across the country of trying to figure out, like, what counts as imminent danger, right? Because our job is do no harm, and we're trying to prevent danger. We're not trying to get to the point where someone's, you know, an emergency. Compared to a year ago, her hospital now provides four times as many abortions for out-of-state patients. Larson treated the patient from Missouri. You know, she told me that she was very frustrated about all the hoops that she had to go through to get care here. The cost of the procedure was extremely stressful to her. For one, there's the travel, and health insurance doesn't always pay. An abortion in a clinic can cost $500, but it's much more expensive at a hospital. For the Missouri patient, it was 6000 Abortion funds stepped in and covered her bills. But Dr. Larson worries how long these funds can help. I think we can sit there and ask, why aren't the hospitals picking up the cost? But why aren't the insurance companies from the out-of-state picking up the cost either? It's like, whose responsibility is this, right? Chicago OBGYN Dr. Jonah Fleischer has another worry. The high-risk patients he will never see. The ones who live in banned states, but never make it to his hospital. More than the stress of somebody who's actually making it to see me, that's the thing that causes me more stress. He knows if some of those patients don't have an abortion, there's a greater chance they could die giving birth or afterwards. I won't know who they are, but statistically I know that it's going to happen. The Missouri patient is now back home and still mourning her loss. But she's also angry. There's a lot of good people out there who go through a lot of unfortunate situations like me who need abortion care. And to have that taken away by the government, it just doesn't feel right. For NPR News, I'm Kristen Schorsch in Chicago. Story comes from NPR's partnership with WBEZ and KFF Health News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for spending some time with us here this evening. Coming up at 6, Japan is releasing treated radioactive water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, and there are concerns over long-term environmental impacts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. 
Former President Trump is expected to surrender tonight in Atlanta. He's facing felony counts related to efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election result. Stay with 90.9 WBUR and NPR tonight for special coverage of the expected booking as it unfolds. Clouds will increase tonight. We might have showers mainly in the wee hours. The low will be around 64 degrees. We'll have rain tomorrow, possibly a thunderstorm too with a high around 70. Saturday should be partly sunny with temps approaching 80, but there will be a chance of showers. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. The Guest by Emma Klein is a novel about love and romance. Well, more about lying and grifting. 22-year-old Alex is staying at her wealthy older suitor's Long Island beach house for the summer. All's well until Alex embarrasses her lover and he kicks her out of his home. Nevertheless, she wants him back, and she has a five-day plan to swindle her way into his arms again. For a classic summer romance novel, look elsewhere. For a chaotic page-turner about survival, check out The Guest by Emma Klein. To get weekly book recommendations just like this sent straight to your inbox, subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The trial for three men accused of aiding in a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan is underway now in northern Michigan. As Interlock and Public Radio's Michael Livingston reports, attorneys gave their opening statements and prosecutors are now presenting their case. Eric Molitor and twin brothers William and Michael Null are the last three defendants to be tried for the unsuccessful plot to abduct the governor from her vacation home. Fourteen people were arrested and charged in 2020. Nine have since been convicted, while two others were acquitted. Prosecutors argue Maltor and the Null brothers provided some form of material support for the plot. The defendants walked up to the edge of violence. The evidence is going to show you that they supported two terrorists. That's Michigan Assistant Attorney General William Ralston. The two terrorists he names are Adam Fox and Barry Croft, the convicted ringleaders who helped bring these defendants further into the fold. Ralston played video clips of the men shooting guns in training exercises and audio of a trip to surveil Governor Gretchen Whitmer's cabin in Elk Rapids. However, the defense said that participating in militia activities, which usually involves paramilitary training, is not a crime. Christina Nunzio represents William Knoll. Bill Knoll has a healthy mistrust of the government, and that alone is not a crime. And he's a firm believer in his Second Amendment rights, not only to bear arms, but for a well-regulated militia. But for FBI Special Agent Hank Impola, they, quote, seem to be escalating toward violence. He was the first to testify today and helped oversee the use of undercover informants. He says this group crossed a line. Obviously, there's freedom of speech and people can say whatever they want, but assessing their level of dangerousness is really what their actions say. The informants he oversaw are likely to testify as the trial unfolds. Governor Whitmer has not commented on this case specifically, but she did speak out when arrests were made in 2020. If you break the law or conspire to commit heinous acts of violence against anyone, we will find you, we will hold you accountable, and we will bring you to justice. The trial in state court is expected to last about three weeks. For NPR News, I'm Michael Livingston in Bel Air, Michigan.
Six new nations are joining the group of emerging economies known as BRICS, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The announcement came on the last day of the summit in South Africa. The group has positioned itself as a counterweight to what it sees as U.S. dominance. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. BRICS was already a politically and economically diverse group before expansion was announced and is formidable in that it counts for 40% of the world's population and about 25% of global GDP. The group has now added Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the United Arab Emirates. This was political analyst Stephen Gruz's take on the news they'll be joining in January 2024. I think they're trying to build on the momentum that's been created of new countries wanting to join the BRICS system. What that will do to the acronym is another question. Relations between current members haven't always been easy. China and India are in a dispute over part of their border, and the combination of new members has also raised eyebrows. Iran and Saudi Arabia are old political foes, and there have also been tensions between Egypt and Ethiopia over a hydroelectric dam on the Nile. Many developing countries have long chafed against what they see as US imperialism and an unequal international system, and like the idea of a group challenging the status quo. No one's more pleased about that than China and Russia, which has been hit hard by sanctions over the Ukraine war. Here's President Vladimir Putin at the summit, joining by video link because an international criminal court warrant for his arrest made it impossible for him to travel to South Africa. Some countries promote their hegemony, exceptionality, and their policy of the ongoing colonialism and neocolonialism. This week, while the other bloc members voiced aspirations for world peace, they fell short of condemning Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. More than 1,500 years ago, followers of Buddhism started painting art inside a string of caves threading through the desert of northwestern China. In some cases, they chiseled elaborate statues directly into the rock. These magnificent caves survived a millennium, but they face a new enemy, rain. NPR's Emily Feng brings us the story. Wang Jingyu has dedicated his professional life to preserving the Mogao Caves, more than 500 temples carved out of cave walls and elaborately painted starting in the 4th century. They're in China's Zhangye and Dunhuang, oases along the ancient Silk Road. In the summers out in Dunhuang, the sun doesn't set until 9 or 10 in the evening, and so a few of the younger researchers and I would spend the hours before dusk with the paintings in the caves, and that's how I grew to love them. Wang was a young, promising researcher when he graduated in the 1980s, just years after China ended a decade of political turmoil called the Cultural Revolution. During that time, schools were shut down and teachers and academics beaten and imprisoned, and there wasn't much conservation expertise left in the country. So Wang was drafted to protect the Dunhuang Caves and Grottoes because of his chemistry background. He spent a decade repairing flaking paint and removing dust. But in the last three decades, it's rain he's most afraid of. This increased rain brings floods. There used to be a wide river and many grand trees in front of the Mogao Caves, but a large amount of underground water now sinks into the caves as well. And the rain then dissolves minerals in the caves to create a caustic, paint-destroying chemical process. Normally, this part of China is extremely dry. It only used to rain about an inch and a half a year. 
But now more rain comes down each year, even as the storms themselves become less frequent, meaning flash flooding and mudslides. China has invested considerably on restoration work of the cave paintings, as depicted in this documentary from the research institute Dunhuang Academy. But the threat from climate change-induced flash flooding is accumulating. Events that the environmental organization Greenpeace says are literally dissolving the cave paintings. Here's Li Zhao with Greenpeace's office in Beijing. The paintings start to experience some processes of precipitating and buildup of salt on the wall painting's surface and makes the painting flaking and detachment. Li collaborated with Wang in China's National Meteorological Administration on the new research. She says humidity reaches as high as 93% inside some caves. Museums usually keep humidity around 40% to protect artwork. The Dunhuang Caves, however, are not inside the confines of a museum. And what saddens Li is not that the Dunhuang Cave paintings will one day be reclaimed by time. Most people who are interested in the cultural heritage, um, they kind of know that uh, the cultural heritage will someday completely disappear. But rather, what is tragic to her is how quickly the art is fading, and our watch. And this may happen just uh, in one or two generations. So it's kind of sad uh, to see them withering under our own eyes. This time in the span of just one generation. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. You can also find us on the WBUR app. Well, do you like the sounds, sights, information, and experiences we bring you? The WBUR journalism you rely on is only possible with your feedback. So tell us what's on your mind. Go to WBUR.org survey and let us hear your voice. Thanks. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Japan is releasing treated radioactive water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Some scientists say it's no cause for alarm, while others worry about long-term environmental consequences. 
It's one of the many things we're adding to our ocean that if you have an alternative, we certainly should consider more fully. Uh, and I don't think that's been done. It's Thursday, August 24th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. NPR is following the latest out of Georgia, where former President Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in on racketeering and conspiracy charges tonight. Special coverage to come. Plus, debate and major disagreement between the Republican presidential candidates over the war in Ukraine. And Mississippi looks to overturn a federal ruling that would allow tens of thousands of formerly incarcerated felons to regain their voting rights. It's 6.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russian President Vladimir Putin is expressing his condolences for the families of the victims killed in a plane crash near Moscow yesterday. But NPR's Charles Maines reports Putin stopped short of confirming Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was killed in the crash. Looking somber as he delivered televised remarks, President Putin said initial reports suggested members of the Wagner mercenary group were aboard the plane when it crashed. The Kremlin leader then praised Wagner's contributions to the war effort in Ukraine, saying they wouldn't be forgotten. Putin also spoke about his decades-long relationship with Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, referring to him in the past tense and calling him a talented person who'd made serious mistakes, an apparent reference to a rebellion launched by Prigozhin against the Russian military earlier this summer. Putin did not expressly confirm Prigozhin's death, but vowed an investigation into the crash would be carried out in full. Charles Baines, NPR News. Moscow. Maui County is suing the Hawaiian Electric Company over wildfires that devastated the town of Lahaina, saying the utility failed to shut off power despite exceptionally high winds and tinder dry conditions. The fast-moving fire earlier this month claimed the lives of at least 115 people, though more than 1,000 remain unaccounted for. There was no immediate comment from the utility. Witness accounts and video have indicated sparks from the downed power lines ignited fires as utility poles snapped in the high winds. Former President Donald Trump is expected to turn himself into authorities at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta tonight. Rahul Bali with member station WABE reports Trump will be booked on 13 felony charges in connection with his alleged efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. The former president is expected to go through the standard arrest procedure, including being fingerprinted and photographed. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office has been regularly releasing booking photos of some of the other defendants that have already turned themselves in, including attorneys Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman. Trump also has to post a $200,000 bond, which requires him to not intimidate other defendants or witnesses, including on social media. All defendants have until noon Friday to turn themselves in. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. The first Republican debate of the 2024 election was notable on a number of fronts. One, who didn't show up, and second for performances by those who did. Frontrunner Donald Trump declined to show up, leaving the stage clear for others. That included Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and political newcomer entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy has moved up in the polls somewhat after his debate showing. Others on stage included former Vice President Mike Pence, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Wall Street continues with its up one day, down the next pattern. The Dow fell 373 points. The Nasdaq was down 257 points today. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The MBTA says part of the red line will be shut down for two weeks in October so workers can replace some of the oldest track in the system. T General Manager Phil Eng said today shuttle buses will replace train service on the Ashmont branch between the JFKU Mass and Ashmont stations and on the Mattapan line. This diversion will allow the crews to replace the rail ties ballast between JFKU, Mass, and Ashmont, and between Ashmont and Mattapan to improve reliability and reduce maintenance needs. Eng says the repair work will allow the T to lift 28 speed restrictions along that portion of the line. The number of people getting health coverage through the state's Medicaid program has declined over the last several months. State officials are checking the eligibility of all MassHealth members and finding tens of thousands no longer qualify. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports. Since April, about 77,000 people have lost mass health coverage because their income is too high. Almost 50,000 people lost benefits because they didn't respond to information requests or because state officials couldn't reach them. Mike Levine is Assistant Secretary for Mass Health. He says the state will continue reaching out to members. We are seeing a response rate that seems to be, I mean, look, it's not where we want to be, but significantly better than we were. People who lose mass health coverage can enroll in private health plans. Some may qualify for subsidies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Tougher safety regulations are being proposed for gas pipelines as a result of the 2018 deadly explosions in the Merrimack Valley. Federal regulators say the changes will improve the management of gas distribution systems, emergency response plans, and safety. The Merrimack Valley explosions killed a teenager and destroyed or damaged more than 130 properties. Well, in sports, it was a big win for the Red Sox this afternoon. They pounded the Astros 17-1 in Houston. That wraps up the series tied at two games apiece. The Sox are heading home to face the Dodgers tomorrow. We might have some showers overnight, but the greatest chances in the early morning. Temps will dip to the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow looks like a wet Friday. It's 72 degrees and overcast in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Former President Trump is en route to turn himself into a jail in Georgia. He faces 13 felony charges from failed efforts to overturn the state's 2020 presidential election. Trump has called these charges political persecution. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler is outside the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta. Hi, Stephen. Hey there. So set the scene for us where you are. What are you looking at? So I am currently looking at one of the two entrances to the Fulton County Jail. I'm surrounded by a row of media. I drove in past protesters, both supporting and opposing former President Trump, parking next to a couple Trump flags, for example. And there's a lot of police present. Uh, The already traffic-clogged roads of Atlanta are only going to get worse because several of them are already blocked off ahead of the motorcade. You know, it's not every day a former president gets booked into a county jail. No, it is not every day that a former president gets booked at a county jail. But on that front, Will he be treated any differently from other criminal defendants who routinely get processed at that jail? 
Well, yes and no. On the one hand, Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt has said Trump will be treated the same, which means we should expect to see the first booking photo out of the four different indictments that he's done in the last four months. Mm -hmm. But he won't be led away in handcuffs or stay there any longer than necessary. It could take about 30 minutes. That's definitely faster than most people who enter this jail. And like many, his lawyers have negotiated a bond agreement beforehand with the DA's office, $200,000. It also includes heightened restrictions on witness intimidation. It's still an unprecedented event to have a former American president booked into a local jail, even with this streamlined processing. Unprecedented indeed. Okay, let's just remind listeners why Trump is there in the first place. He already faces charges for trying to overturn the 2020 election, but at the federal level, these are, of course, local charges. Just walk us through this case real quick. Well, Elsa, long story short, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis alleges that Trump was the center of a, quote, criminal enterprise, this conspiracy to illegally overturn the 2020 election loss in Georgia. Unlike the federal charges last month, the state-level charges won uh, under an expansive racketeering law that's got 18 other co-defendants. Mm -hmm. Two, it zeroes in on efforts to get state-level officials to illegally overturn the election results. And three, he can't be pardoned by himself or anyone else other than a state-appointed pardons and parole board, but only after the end of any sentence. Right, because these are state charges. Okay, all 19 defendants in this case are supposed to turn themselves in by tomorrow afternoon. What should we expect next at that point? Well, this is a very complicated case, and there's a fire hose of developments coming nonstop. Here's a couple of them that illustrate how complex it'll be with 19 different people, 19 different sets of lawyers, and 19 different levels of involvement. For example, there's a federal court hearing Monday where former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows is seeking to have his case removed from state court and dismissed altogether, while another defendant, lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro, wants a speedy trial. The district attorney says okay and is now asking for all 19 people, including Trump, to have that trial by the end of October. Ooh. It'll be up to a judge to decide that. And Donald Trump has a new lawyer leading the case in Georgia. He's an accomplished defense attorney named Steve Sadow, who's defended rappers and racketeering cases, including the other high-profile RICO case playing out in Atlanta right now with hip-hop artist Young Thug. That's just a small look at what will be happening moving forward. Rappers and racketeering. I like it. That is Georgia Public Broadcasting. Stephen Fowler. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Three hundred fifty million gallons. That's how much radioactive wastewater Japan has stored at the now defunct Fukushima nuclear power plant which melted down after a massive earthquake and tsunami in 2011. The government began releasing some of that water into the Pacific Ocean today. International inspectors have approved the plan to release the water slowly over decades. Still, many people are concerned. NPR's Jeff Brumfield and Kat Lonsdorf are here to talk us through the science behind the decision. Good to have you both in the studio. Hey, Ari. Hello. Kat, you made a reporting trip to Fukushima in 2020. You went to the Daiichi nuclear power plant. Why is there so much radioactive water there? So the water comes from a couple of sources. First, it's water that was used to cool the reactors when they melted down in 2011. But then they've also had to continue pumping water in to cool those same reactors. Even though they're offline and being decommissioned, you can't just turn a nuclear reactor off. And then there's also groundwater that's filtered into the site over the years. So this water keeps building up. 
It's being stored in these giant tanks right now. There are about a thousand on the site. I went to see them when I was there, and they just stretch on for as far as the eye can see. And that was three years ago. So they're really running out of room now. Managing and storing that water safely has been a huge problem, which is why the government has been treating it to release it. And Jeff, what does that actually mean to treat these 350 million gallons of water? It all comes down to one word, Ari, which is filtration. The Japanese government's basically built the world's largest Brita filter. Um, (laughs) And what they're trying to do is basically remove as many of the radioactive elements as they can. So these are things like strontium and cesium, which are dangerous for humans and animals. And they can get those down below government safety limits. But there is a radioactive isotope they can't get rid of, and that's called tritium. Tritium is an isotope of hydrogen, and hydrogen is you know part of H2O. It's part of the water itself. So they can't filter it, and that's something that's made this plan controversial. Now, I should say tritium isn't the most dangerous radioactive element out there. It doesn't build up inside plants and animals, and it has a half-life of just 12 years as opposed to something like uranium-235, which sticks around for 700 million years. So it could be worse. And Ari, I think some helpful context here is that for better or worse, functioning nuclear power plants around the world release tritium regularly for the reasons Jeff just explained. We haven't figured out a way to filter it out of water. So not to pile on, but this is happening all over the place. There are standards that have been set for it. And in some places, it's happening at levels much higher than what we're seeing in this release. And yet there is still local and regional objections, which we'll talk about in a moment. First, tell us how Japan is actually putting this water into the ocean. There are a couple steps. First, they're going to dilute the radioactive water so that there's a lot less tritium in every drop. The government says that they will bring tritium levels to well below all safety limits. Then they're going to take that diluted water and pass it through a super long tunnel under the seafloor to a point off the coast of Fukushima and the Pacific Ocean. And that will dilute it further. And like you said, Ari, they're not just dumping it all in. They're going to do this slowly. It's going to take decades to empty out those tanks. You've both been talking with a lot of scientists about this plan. What are they telling you? So generally, most scientists seem to agree that this will have a negligible impact on the environment if it's done to plan. I talked to Jim Smith. He's a professor of environmental science at Portsmouth University in the UK. He's been studying radioactivity in waterways impacted by nuclear waste for decades. The risk is really, really, really low. And I would call it not a risk at all. We've got to you know, put radiation in perspective. And and the, the planned release, if it's done properly, then the doses that people get and the doses that the ecosystem get just won't be significant, in my opinion. But even if that's true, not all scientists think this is a good idea. I spoke to Ken Bissler at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. He worries about the precedent Japan sets by doing this, even though he agrees the ocean will dilute the radioactivity. It's a big place. We're not going to suffer directly from the doses from this but it's one of the many things we're adding to our ocean that if you have an alternative, we certainly should consider more fully. Uh, And I don't think that's been done in the past couple of years. And Bissler's also worried that even small quantities of contaminants missed by that filtration system I mentioned could slowly accumulate in the sediments around the plant. That could cause problems for local fisheries down the road. Our colleague Anthony Kuhn was reporting from Fukushima yesterday where people are worried. There have been protests in South Korea. China has banned seafood from the area. Are people overreacting? 
No, I don't think people in Fukushima are overreacting at all. I mean, during and immediately after the disaster, the government and TEPCO, that's the company that runs the nuclear power plant, were both pretty deceitful with data and information. They've since apologized and are trying to be more transparent, but there's this deep distrust that's still there. And, you know, Fukushima is a big fishing area. So even if scientists say that the fish from there is fine, if people around the world don't trust that and won't buy it, that's not good. You know, there's a geopolitical side to this as well. You know, there's a history of radioactive contamination in the Pacific. It was the site of nuclear testing during the Cold War, and many Pacific Island nations suffered the consequences. Ken Bissler is working with some of them, and, you know, he told me the trauma runs deep. Some of these islands are still off limits. So the idea of a developed country using the Pacific to unload its radioactive wastewater just upsets quite a few people on principle. NPR's Jeff Brumfield and Kat Lonsdorf, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before candidates even spoke during last night's Republican presidential debate, this song took the stage. It's called Rich Men North of Richmond, and it's sung by a previously unknown artist named Oliver Anthony. The song is now topping the Billboard 100 chart. Dig into the lyrics and you'll find extremist narratives and references to conspiracy theories. Hear that conversation on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. As you've been hearing, former President Donald Trump is expected to surrender tonight in Atlanta. He's facing felony racketeering and conspiracy charges connected to efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election result. Stay with WBUR and NPR tonight for special coverage of the expected booking as it happens. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Family-owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped more than 370 points, just over 1 percent. The S&P lost nearly 1.4 percent. NASDAQ went down 1.9 percent. In local business news, the estate of a Table Talk Pies heir is donating $4 million to a major charity in Worcester. The Greater Worcester Community Foundation says it'll use the money to fund education, economic development, and refugee resettlement programs. The gift comes from the estate of the oldest daughter of Table Talk co-founder Theodore Tona. The Worcester Company was founded in 1924. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. 
We'll have a chance of showers overnight, mainly in the early morning, temps in the mid-60s. Then tomorrow, showers, maybe some thunderstorms, highs around 70 degrees. It's 72 and cloudy right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. A federal court ruling earlier this month would allow as many as 30,000 formerly incarcerated people who were convicted of felonies to regain their voting rights in Mississippi. But as Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Michael McEwen reports, the state is looking to overturn that decision on appeal. Mississippians convicted of any one of 22 felonies are prohibited from voting, even after completing their sentences. Veronica Bilbo was previously convicted of a qualifying felony and has been released, but barred from voting for four years. It's what we think of as a fundamental right, you know, as a citizen. And then to have that taken away, when you've done your time, you've been productive, you had zero recidivism, and then, you know, as a Black woman, knowing the price was paid for us to be able to go and vote, then to find out we can't, it's like eternal punishment. Early this month, a three-judge panel said the Mississippi law was cruel and unusual punishment and in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The majority said Mississippi stands as an outlier among other states that maintain lifetime felon voting bans. In 1974, the last time the U.S. Supreme Court considered the constitutional standing of such laws, 32 states had them. Today, the number is less than half that. That's frankly, very much the argument we made to the court. Attorney John Youngwood represented six Mississippians who'd had their voting rights stripped. The last time the Supreme Court had a case on this issue, the status of the laws in the country were very, very different. The vast majority of states would not permit a former felon to vote. There is now a growing consensus and a firm consensus in the country that forbidding people to vote for the rest of their lives for a crime they commit when they're very young is not appropriate. The state of Mississippi has now appealed the decision, arguing it would, quote, inflict profound damage and widespread confusion. They want the full Fifth Circuit Court to rule. The earlier three-judge panel featured two Democratic nominees, but the full court is often thought of as one of the most conservative in the country. That is cast out over the ruling's future. For NPR News, I'm Michael McEwen in Jackson, Mississippi. Last night, eight of the Republican candidates running for president took the debate stage for the first time, and while they agreed on a lot, one major point of disagreement was Russia's war on Ukraine. Here are candidates Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and Chris Christie in a debate on the Fox News Channel last night. Mr. Ramaswamy, you would not support an increase of funding to Ukraine? I would not. And I think that this is disastrous that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border. I will have Europe pull their weight. Uh, Right now, they're not doing that. If we don't stand up against this type of autocratic killing in the world, we will be next. The elephant not in the room, as the moderator put it, was former President Donald Trump. And in an interview with Tucker Carlson, Trump criticized Biden's handling of the war. That's a war that should end immediately, not because of one side or the other, because hundreds of thousands of people are being killed. 
Let's talk about what this disagreement could mean for the people fighting and providing aid to the war. NPR's Brian Mann is in Ukraine, just east of Kharkiv, and NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is here in the studio. Hi, guys. Hey, Ari. Hey there, Ari. Tom, how concerned are the war's supporters that skepticism of USAID to Ukraine seems to be growing? Well, right, Ari, we heard from that debate there's a division within the Republican Party between internationalists like Nikki Haley, who support Ukraine and are concerned about Russian aggression spreading, and the so-called American first wing, of course, led by former President Trump. There is concern among Ukraine backers that support could erode, especially on Capitol Hill. Republican Congressman Andy Harris, who, by the way, Ari, is co-chair of the Ukraine caucus, said recently the Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed, does not think Ukraine can win, and he's not sure he'll support more military aid. That has concerned Ukraine supporters like Congressman Adam Smith, the top Democrat on armed services. He told me they will have to work hard to shore up support in the coming months. Now, the U.S. already has provided uh, around $76 billion since the Russian invasion 18 months ago. That's out of $113 billion authorized by Congress. Now, the Biden administration, Ari, is seeking another $40 billion, most of that for military aid. And Brian, when you talk to people in Ukraine, how aware are they that there is not a consensus here in the U.S.? And what would it mean for them if the U.S. did cut aid or tried to force Ukraine to accept a peace deal that gave Russia part of the country? Yeah, Ari, people here are watching this really closely, and and they say uh, any big drawback by the U.S. would be devastating. You know, they've paid an enormous human price resisting Russia's invasion. Uh, Also, civilian populations have suffered these very well-documented war crimes. But it's not only Ukrainians watching this debate in the U.S. You know, right now the U.S. leads a big coalition against Moscow, you know, countries like Bulgaria and Poland that are relying on Washington's leadership. If we pulled the plug in Ukraine, it would potentially unravel that coalition. Also important to point out that the U.S. isn't only countering Russia here in Ukraine. Russia's opposed U.S. interests for years in Africa, the Middle East, and in cyberspace. So, you know, giving Putin a win, as Ramaswamy described it, that would resonate well beyond the war zone where I am now. We've been hearing for months about what a struggle Ukraine's counteroffensive has been. Tom, could that failure to make quick, decisive advances on the battlefield further erode U.S. support. No, I think it could. And really from the beginning, Ari, there were doubts in the Pentagon about how much Ukraine could achieve in this counteroffensive by the fall. People I talked with suggested only modest gains. Now, the goal, of course, in in the South is to break the so-called land bridge between Russia and Crimea. That would be a huge achievement and isolate Crimea, Putin's big prize. But so far, the Ukrainians have been making some gains, but face three lines of Russian defenses that are formidable. Landmines are the big problem, tens of thousands of them. Now, the U.S. and Britain have told Ukraine, you're spreading your forces too thin along the front line, and you have to concentrate those troops for a big push, a big punch in the south, using the Western-trained troops to, again, break that land bridge. We'll see if they take that advice. And officials say time is of the essence because when the fall comes, the rains come, and everything just slows down. Brian, you've been near the front lines. What do the Ukrainians tell you about how their counteroffensive is going? Yeah, they they acknowledge that it's hard. I was with Ukraine's defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, this week, uh, and he, he said, yeah, things are slow. The Russians are actually on the offensive near where I'm at now, Russian troops attacking a Ukrainian city called Kupiansk, uh, triggering a new wave of refugees. Reznikov dismissed that battle as an effort to distract Ukraine and divert troops. 
It's also worth saying the Ukrainians, while they're struggling right now, they do continue to score small victories. Uh, in the last 24 hours, we saw an amphibious assault. Ukrainian officials say was carried out by their commandos in Russian-occupied uh, Crimea. So while the big fight is grinding and costly, Ukrainians say they are still landing significant blows. And Tom, does that square with what you're hearing from military and other sources in the U.S.? Well, there were mixed messages again, but a Washington think tank is following all this closely, the Institute for the Study of War. They're pretty optimistic about the situation and believe the Ukrainians could soon threaten that second line of Russian defenses, the second of three. But again, we'll just have to see. Now, Congressman Adam Smith told me he's neither pessimistic nor optimistic about the counteroffensive. He said the Ukrainians have well-trained troops and this will all take a lot of time. But again, if there's little progress by late fall, it will only raise more questions about continued support, especially as a presidential campaign heats up. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Kharkiv, Ukraine, and Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman here in the studio. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming to City Space Saturday, September 9th, three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky for a special evening of poetry featuring jazz performances. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We could have some showers overnight, mainly in the early morning, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, showers. We might have some thunderstorms, too. Tomorrow's high around 70. Well, All Things Considered continues now as we await the surrender of former President Donald Trump to authorities in Fulton County, Georgia. Stay with WBUR and NPR for special coverage when that happens. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body? Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.